Hello and welcome to Max Politics. This is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette, a publication of Citizens Union Foundation. Thanks very much for tuning in for this episode of the show. We're speaking here on the morning of Wednesday, February 1st, 2023, just a few hours after the State of the Borough Address delivered by my guest, Manhattan Borough President Mark Levine. On this episode of the show, we're talking about Manhattan. Where are things stand in the borough? Where is it Where is it heading? Is it a luxury product larger than reserved for the wealthy, other than those who can hold on to a rent-regulated or public housing apartment? Borough President Levine just gave his 2023 State of the Borough speech and laid out an agenda headlined by a big new housing plan. Borough President Levine is here to discuss that plan and much more about Manhattan and the larger New York City. According to the BP's new report, almost 40% of households in Manhattan are rent burdened, meaning they pay over a third of their income in rent. We'll dive into his new vision for 70,000 plus new units of housing in Manhattan, 41% of which would be affordable according to his new plan utilizing 171 sites that his office has identified for development, as well as nine neighborhood rezonings, yes, nine, and a variety of other strategies, including how to better influence private development for more housing to address the Manhattan and New York City affordable housing crisis. And we'll touch on various other topics here as time allows. I have a long list of items on the borough president's agenda and others of importance to Manhattan and the city, including but not limited to the future of bus and bike lanes, outdoor dining and open streets, scaffolding reform, a possible casino in the borough, public health issues that have been a focus for the borough president, the jail plan for lower Manhattan and more. As a reminder, the borough president is a position with some decisive and influential powers, a significant bully pulpit, a formal voice in land use, decision-making matters, tens of millions of dollars in annual budgetary funds to distribute, the responsibility to appoint members to community boards and other bodies. Borough presidents can work with the city council to introduce and advance legislation, but they do not get to vote. They are conveners. And the position allows office holders a good bit of flexibility to focus on issues of their choosing, crafting staff reports, pursuing legislative, budgetary, and other action from the city and state, acting as ambassador, cheerleader, and so on. This is our third somewhat recent conversation with a borough president of New York City, as I've sought to talk with all the BPs about their agendas here, as they are all at least now one year into this role. I've spoken in recent months with Queensborough President Donovan Richards and Brooklyn Borough President Antonio Reynoso. And with both, we got into a lot on housing and land use because that is so central to the job of Borough President. I'm hoping to speak with Bronx Borough President Vanessa Gibson and Staten Island BP Vito Fisella in the coming weeks. Those invitations are going out. My guest today, Manhattan Borough President Mark Levine, is a Democrat and former city council member who has just finished his first year in the role after winning a tough and competitive Democratic primary in the 2021 race and then cruising to victory in the general election that year. He previously represented the 7th City Council District, including West Harlem, Hamilton Heights, Morningside Heights, parts of the Upper West Side, and Washington Heights. 
In his eight years in the city council, he focused on tenants' rights, public health, and other issues. He chaired the council's health committee during the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic. He is perhaps best known legislatively for having been a lead sponsor on the city's right to counsel law for tenants facing eviction and housing court, which helped lead to a significant decline in evictions. And Mark Levine is with me now to discuss the work his office did in 2022 and now into this year, his brand new State of the Borough agenda headlined by a new and ambitious housing plan. Manhattan Borough President Mark Levine, welcome. Thank you for being here. How are you? I am doing very well. I'm happy to be back on the podcast. It's been way too long. That was uh, an excellent introduction and been probably the best summation of the duties of the borough president's office that I've ever heard. I'm going to have to transcribe that and make use of it. Well done. (laughs) Tried to keep it simple, but get to a lot. Um, I do think, you know, I do think... um, not, not that I want to be sucked into you, uh, you buttering me up here with that compliment, but I do think that um, there are roles in New York City like borough president that are sometimes undervalued by people. I get why people are critical sometimes of the role. Oh, it's too ceremonial. There's not that many real powers. But boy, you know, you have a staff, you can really push issues, you have a bully pulpit, you have the formal role in land use matters. Um, you know, I think a lot of it is what the the office holder makes of it, but um, you know, but it can it can be a significant role, and and it's interesting to see the new crop of borough presidents, including yourself, who are trying to make a mark here. So why don't you why don't you start with that and the role of the borough president here and your housing plan? How are you trying to take the role of borough president, which obviously deals with land use matters in the formal Euler process, where you where you have a non decisive uh, advisory opinion, but it's a significant step in the process. You have that role. You have the role of borough president. You can do staff reports like you're putting out here. You can convene. You can influence. You have the bully pulpit. How are you thinking about your role and housing and the future of Manhattan? Well, Ben, as you said, land use is an area where the borough president's powers are considerable. And I just can't sit back with the influence the office has and do nothing in the face of what has to be considered a full-blown affordability crisis in Manhattan. I think pretty clearly the worst in our history as anyone who's ever tried to rent an apartment here in recent months knows the average market rate rentals are going for $5,000 a month. And this is devastating. First to low income people who are, likely to wind up in homeless shelters simply because they can't find housing they can afford. This is actually the number one reason why families wind up in the shelter system. It's not mental health or substance use. For family homelessness, it really is the inability to find an apartment that they can afford. But Ben, it's not just limited to low-income Manhattanites anymore, not when rents are 5000 a month. Even working in middle-class people, nurses, bus drivers, teachers, are finding it extremely difficult to find homes they can afford in the borough. And for a young person who grows up here, it's very difficult for them to find a home of their own when they want to start their own family or come back from college. And it's, it it threatens to change the course of, of tries to change the makeup of the borough in ways that um, I think are absolutely unacceptable. This is becoming a borough where, you have to be rich to find an apartment. And I'm just not going to sit back and accept that. 
especially when I'm fortunate enough to be occupying an office which has influence on the future of housing creation in the borough because of our role in rezonings and land use, because we appoint and run community boards, because we have a capital budget that can at times be used for affordable housing creation. We have an appointment to the city planning commission and uh, also the ability to introduce legislation in the city council. And as you mentioned, a really big bully pulpit. And I think for my office, probably the biggest stage of the year is the annual state of the borough address. And we use it to focus on this crisis and, and what, what I can do in my role and, and what, leaders at all levels of government can and should do to address this. Mm-hmm. So we'll try to get into some specifics. Obviously, this is a very comprehensive, uh, detailed report. Uh, but before we get into some of the specifics in it, broadly speaking, give people the, the broad overview of what it is and what it includes. Well, as you've, as you've chronicled on this podcast, um, there's been a real shift, in, and I'd say particularly the last six months in, in which uh, regular New Yorkers and leaders are, are starting to come to terms with the fact that we just have a desperate shortage of housing and especially affordable housing. We have to create more. And we've seen great policy initiatives from everything from the mayor to the city council speaker to the governor. And uh, these are measures which collectively, I think, will remove some of the barriers that we have faced to creating the housing that we need. But at the end of the day, no one's actually going to move into a home unless we can identify specific sites where we can create housing. And that's often where um, we hit a brick wall, uh, where, uh, you know, it's in, in theory, uh, I think if you do a poll, uh, probably 99% of New Yorkers would agree that we have to create more housing and more affordable housing. But when it comes down to specific sites, um, often there's um, really contentious uh, debates that that can kill projects. And I feel like we have to move beyond that. First, we have to make a clear statement that, yes, there is room to build housing in Manhattan. And we have to have a broad vision and a plan to say, um, we're not just going to sit back and wait for proposals to come in from a developer or a city agency. We're going to assertively determine where we can build the housing that we need. And so I had my land use staff scour every block of the borough, every zoning lot, and they came back with even more sites than I dared to hope, 171 sites throughout the borough in every neighborhood where we believe we can build housing, vacant lots, um, underutilized or empty buildings, um, single story retail, which could have housing on top of it. And they also identified nine neighborhoods where by updating the zoning, we can unlock the potential to create housing. And it all adds up to potentially 73,000 homes. And um, making very conservative assumptions we believe that at least 30,000 of them would be affordable. And that this would just, it would, it would change the, the trajectory for families in Manhattan. It would, it would really mean it would be possible for families who are currently being pushed out to find a home they can afford. And um, that seems like a vision worth fighting for. Um, 
70,000 new units of housing, if if let's say uh, on a reasonable, uh, not too optimistic, not too conservative, uh, on a reasonable timeline that takes into account the the, the significant challenges of getting you know uh, plans like this to fruition in New York City, and I understand you have plenty of ideas for making things move faster, as does the mayor, as does the governor. We'll see what actually comes to fruition, but do you have a number of years that the seventy thousand could come to uh, be built in? You know, the mayor has talked about five hundred thousand units over the next decade. The governor has talked about 800,000 units statewide over the next decade. Do you have a, a timeline on those 70,000 units? Well, Ben, uh, you know, we might talk more about what these specific projects are and, and what an interesting diversity of sites they are. There are some that could have shovels in the ground this year hmm. that have already been identified for housing production and are just stuck or delayed for some reason or another. And we included them in our report because we want to push. Um but the process of of rezoning, if that's necessary, and and then the process of actually building and completing housing, that that's got to be measured in a timeline of years. So I think most of what we've identified realistically could be done in five years. I think in some cases um, we're going to need a decade horizon. Mm-hmm. Uh, that might frustrate people, but uh, does take a while to build. Uh, we're going to look for quick wins. Um, conversions are are easier than building from scratch or quicker, I would say, and um, bringing back uh, an existing building, which is boarded up, uh, is going to be quicker than building one from the ground up. So there, there are some sites which can move quickly, yeah. but uh, we can't let the timeline be an excuse for an action. Uh, they got to start the, sometime. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And in your report, um, it says since 2017, we're averaging just 6,000 new units built per year in our borough. So um, if if production is able to ramp up using a lot of the strategies and the sites and the rezonings and the other tools in this report and, and some of the other things, as I said, other leaders are working on, um, you think that that number can get from 6,000 new units in the borough per year over the last five years to, to about how many per year? Well, first, let me tell you that the pace of housing production in Manhattan is actually dropping. Last year, there were under 3,500 units in Manhattan, and um, that compares to over 11,000 created in Brooklyn. Uh, and that, that, that represents a real reversal in the, the normal pattern in, in housing creation. So it's, 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 it is quite alarming. Um, I, I want to point out that the our project is is nowhere near a comprehensive list of all the potential sites for housing production. Um, uh, for example, we um, while we we make reference to the potential to convert vacant office buildings in Midtown to housing, um, and strongly support that, and I'm, I am and will continue to do work to make that happen. Um, we weren't able to identify specific buildings in the report because um, we we just don't know. The structure of those programs and we don't know which buildings would would opt in so um that's not captured in our number uh to give you one example um i was actually also- i was actually i have a note here to give you credit for that because not only you know is it maybe difficult to, to identify which specific buildings but obviously this discussion has been happening for a while we'll see you know we'll see if there's any real movement on it but i don't think 
I think it makes a lot of sense to not be counting uh, any, if many, you know, many or any units of of office conversions because we're just not seeing it, you know, not seeing it happen uh, as of yet out of the out of the pandemic. We're not, and I hope we will. It's gonna it's gonna be tougher than people realize. It's yeah. it's worth fighting for because some of those office buildings, especially the older ones, are are really not going to come back for in-person office work. Mm-hmm. And and so that does represent an opportunity to make Midtown a, a vibrant 24-hour neighborhood, just as has happened in, in lower Manhattan after 9-11. Actually, it even started before 9-11. But caveats, um, the buildings in, nine, in lower Manhattan were really older with smaller floor plates, like pre-World War II, and that does make for easier housing conversion. Think of these buildings from the 1980s with really big floor plates that it doesn't work as well for an apartment layout. And also in lower Manhattan, the housing that emerged was all very high end, very little affordability. Mm-hmm. In fact, we've actually net lost affordability in lower Manhattan. So we don't want to repeat those mistakes in Midtown. Real challenges, we're fighting for them. Um, but uh, Speaking yes, of that, the, the Midtown uh, rezoning process that the mayor announced in his state of the city, that's part of your plan, right? You, you, you have uh, a shared vision as do the council members involved, uh, Keith Powers and Eric Botcher. You're all sort of on board with that. Well, yes, there are manufacturing areas in Midtown, especially Midtown West, um, which some people might be surprised to know. We still have areas of Midtown where you are, only allowed to operate manufacturing you can't you can't have housing and you know in the garment district in particular uh it's it's pretty stark so much space in that neighborhood is empty because it's owned for manufacturing and virtually the entire garment production sector has left some overseas some in other parts of the country some in other parts of new york city but it's just not really happening in that neighborhood anymore Last figure I heard is that only 2% of the manufacturing space um, in the garment sensor is being used for actual garment production. Mm -hmm. And so our plan does call for updated zoning there, which would allow for residential conversions. And, um, you know, you asked about timeline. We we expect that in the coming decade, that would unlock um, 3,000 units of housing. We... Um, also project uh, a 20-year timeline of 6,000 units, although, again, in the interest of being conservative, we didn't go out that far in in our total numbers. But to give you a sense of the capacity there, uh, mm-hmm. it's there's a real opportunity in that neighborhood, and, and it does seem like there's interest now in updating manufacturing areas. There are other manufacturing areas of the borough as well. There's some in East 90s, um, for people who know the neighborhood around um, Holmes Towers, that right now you can do auto service part, uh, auto service businesses or self storage facilities, but you can't do housing. And so that's another area, one of the nine that we call for updated zoning. Um, yeah, let's get into a little bit more on the nine uh, rezonings that you're calling for. But but before we get to that, just broadly speaking, reading this report, it, it, it tell me tell me if you agree, but it, it felt like a, a really big reminder that our zoning is a mess <laughs> that, that um, you know, that different piecemeal changes over time and, and the vision that was laid out when things were overhauled decades ago, 
has just, you know, not up, you know, updated with the times. It has not been changed enough that things are really, really a mess with the regulations of what you can build and where and how high and what types of things. And I wonder um, as much, A, you know, is that some of your your takeaway and how you're thinking about that as you've gone through this exhaustive process here? Um, A, B though, are you, do you have other thoughts about, you know, the, the mayoral administration is working on some big zoning text amendments and how sort of, um, you know, that process will also unfold that that obviously takes a citywide vision, but will have some some local um, flexibility. And, you know, we'll see what it looks like in the mayor's um, housing for opportunity zoning amendment that's due sometime later this year for initial phases of review. But um just the broader picture of zoning, it seems like it's really in our way here in a lot of ways and is a, is a big challenge. And you're looking to take that on in some very, very specific ways. But are there also ways that we should probably be zooming way out and, and rethinking zoning in the city? Absolutely. We haven't had a comprehensive reconfiguration of zoning in New York City since 1961. That was the last time. And when you think about that year, okay, sure, that's why there's areas of Manhattan that are zoned for manufacturing because uh, even though it's probably declining at that point, it was still significant in the borough. Uh, you would never design a zoning plan like that now. Why, why do we have parts of the Upper East Side zoned for manufacturing uh, when we have a housing crisis? So that, that's an obvious one. But, but more, we require significant amount of parking, require mandate for new housing construction. Um, there are, I've talked to, to developers on many occasions that have told me, I'd rather use that space for more apartments. I'm building on top of a subway stop and mm-hmm. I'm, I'm actually going to be able to house fewer people because the zoning law requires me to do a certain amount of parking. And that's also kind of a 1961 mentality when, when the car was king and now we face a housing crisis. Um, seems crazy not to at least give developers the flexibility to include more housing if they, if they so choose. The environmental um, review process, which was launched with um, the best of intentions, has now, I think, become an impediment to projects that doesn't really bring an environmental benefit. In fact, can even be in that harm for the environment. Uh, the review process can add uh, a lot of time and a lot of cost to a project. It can kill a project. Um, it could kill a project that would be housing on top of a subway stop, which I think almost every environmental advocate would say is a win for climate because it means people will be less likely to have to drive everywhere. But the so-called environmental review process can kill projects like that. So um, I I commend uh, the mayor and and shout out to the city planning commissioner, my friend, Dan Gorodnik for, for looking at citywide changes. But again, Ultimately, I think the hardest part is finding specific sites and working through the process of building community support and listening to stakeholders. And, um, and that's what we really wanted to focus on in the report and what I think my office is uniquely positioned to help on.
Yeah, no, I think, I mean, I think in this sort of, uh, to, to make any real progress on all this, it's gotta be, uh, gotta be all those things, right. And having a borough president identify all these spots and put forward a vision for changing zoning in, in these various ways and very specific ways and identifying, um, all sorts of parcels of land uh, of, of various types, um, which, you know, we didn't get into all the specifics, but you named some of them, uh, you know, is, is pretty key to this process. You talked about uh, just, just now there about, um, you know, sort of community public support. You mentioned earlier how the conversation has really been shifting around housing undoubtedly in New York city and state. Um, there's obviously still plenty of voices who don't really want to see a lot of new housing built. They certainly don't want to see it in their, um, you know, on their block or in their neighborhood. Um, but the conversation has really been shifting and people coming more and more to terms with the housing crunch, the lack of supply, the, the challenges with affordability, uh, supply and demand issues and, and so forth. Um but say a little bit about how you plan to engage and how you already have and how you plan to engage communities, city council members, community boards, uh, neighborhood groups and, and others in really making um, this a broadly supported vision for Manhattan and its neighborhoods. Well, Ben, first, just as, as a marker of, of how much I think the conversation is shifting on this. Probably the most common incoming that I and my team have gotten in the last 24 hours, and we have gotten a lot, is people suggesting sites in their neighborhood where mm -hmm. they want to see housing. I didn't see that coming. I really, <laughs> I was really prepared yeah. for uh, a lot of pushback on individual sites, and we've gotten a little bit of that. That's inevitable. But um, we've gotten so many good ideas coming in, and I encourage your listeners, if you live in Manhattan and have ideas in your neighborhood, send, send them our way. That I think there's a good chance we'll have to publish an addendum or expand the list at some point. Um, some some of these are um, are excellent ideas, um, but almost every site we mentioned is going to require some public action, uh, a rezoning, aka ULERP. Um, many of them are on sites owned by one city agency or another, so you have to work with the city agency. Um, and and that means this is going to be this is going to take work. This is this is going to we're going to have to roll up our sleeves on this. Community boards, council members, uh, elected officials, other stakeholders, um, and absolutely we want local engagement on these on these projects. We we want to think about the historic context of neighborhoods. We want to think about livability in neighborhoods going forward. We have to balance all of that, but um, we can't. Uh, ignore the the urgency of, of creating housing. And I'm optimistic based on how the first 24 hours have gone that we're going to have a really productive conversation. But we're going to be working with every board, all 12 boards, to um, to dig into these plans. And, you know, to the extent that I've had people who have come to me and said, um, there's a certain site in your proposal that I object to, and I'm sure I'll hear this a lot in the months ahead. My response is, no problems. This is not about one site. It's about the vision of creating a lot of housing. So if you have a problem with one site that we propose in your neighborhood, just find me another site <laughs> with yeah. an equal number of units. Uh -huh. And, uh -huh. you know, that's not usually, usually the way we have these conversations, right? It's just generally thumbs up or thumbs down on a given proposal. Mm -hmm. But wow, it really changes the dynamic when you 
engage people in the goal of just finding enough housing. And so I expect I'm going to have a lot of conversations like that uh, in the months ahead. Uh, but I feel more optimistic than even 24 hours ago that we're going to be able to do this. Not to dampen that optimism, but say a little bit about the busy- biggest obstacles here. Is it that not in my backyard attitude, NIMBYism? Is it the very community boards that not all, but many can often be, um, you know, have a general sort of anti-development, anti-change uh, lens. You obviously uh, have a chance to put a lot of imprint on the character and lens of those community boards, making the appointments to them. Um, but that's not so easy in just one year to to do drastic overhauls there. Um, what are the biggest What are the biggest impediments here? Well, you can't build anything in Manhattan without it being a fight because every inch is precious here and there's competing uses for every inch. So we have a lot of sites that are currently being used for surface parking. And, uh, you know, I've, I have some some battle scars for from a fight in, in my when I was in the city council on West 108th Street where um, we had a block full of uh old dilapidated garages but nonetheless where people parked their cars and 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 we wanted to turn it into supportive housing and and we got a lot of pushback the the project went forward it's been open now for a few months it's fabulously successful it's home for over 200 families um the block is safer and 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 um more more alive than it's been in decades um but we're going to see fights like that because uh, people people get into patterns on where they store their car and they don't want to change them. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, there um, is that maybe the biggest sort of a- a- existential issue here and and potential issue with the future of Manhattan. Is it a battle over cars and parking? Um, it, it, it's one of many, mm-hmm. uh, but. I mean, this this is a topic that's way beyond housing. This is about uh, you know, talking about how we move in Manhattan. Is a question that impacts our environment, uh, public health, economic development. Um, but in some cases, it's also a housing question. Um, it, it is shocking how much surface parking there is still today yeah. in Manhattan. I mean, I would yeah. think I, taking taking that point certainly about parking into consideration. I would think that the the number one impediment I would think is it was was as you got at in the in the uh, initial part of the answer about battles over every you know piece of space that it that it's it really does go back to that question of development in my neighborhood in my sure. backyard um, and and questions about whether people are welcoming of of new housing and you get into this this tension often where um i obviously don't have to tell you you have people who are already there they already have the housing <laughs> so they're not as concerned about uh people they don't know you know you're often fighting for sort of the the next residents of manhattan that they don't have names or faces and i i yes, appreciate yes, well hearing you um also also say though and this is where I think there's some really interesting things around the governor trying to get more housing built on Long Island. We don't need to go into that now. But uh, it was interesting to hear you talk about how, you know, people's kids want to try to find uh, apartments to come back to Manhattan after they graduate from college or whatever it might be. 
and they can't find an affordable place. Yes. And that, you know, as, as something of a way to um, help people think about this differently. But that's got to be um, the, the number one thing here still is. So say a little bit about how you think about that in the relation to your job and your responsibility to appoint community board members. Well, we've we've added um, important new questions to the community board application in each of the last two years. Uh, last year, we added a question about um, car ownership and how people pri- pri- primarily get around because we have felt that people who get around by ways other than cars have been underrepresented on boards. We asked added the question this year on kind of like a little mini survey on how people look at housing and how they weigh the importance of, uh, for example, um, adding more housing, adding more affordable housing, uh, preserving views, which is we haven't talked about yet, which is often another um, another reason why people oppose these projects. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, 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 we want the boards to be committed to solving the housing emergency. And as I mentioned before in our conversation and in the report, we, ha- we have to balance uh, the need for historic preservation and livability, all those things matter, but too often um, we're not putting enough weight on the housing needs. And, um, but we spoke to uh, all the community board chairs prior to the release of the report and the heads of the relevant committees like land use and housing in the days that, uh, prior to re- the release. And again, so it was, so they were surprisingly productive conversations. Mm. And, you know, with, without calling names or boards out, even, even some of the individuals and boards, which, you know, in the last year had been um, opposing projects, I think are now trying to find a way to get to yes, trying to find a way to be pro housing in their neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. And um, so I, I expect that while there's going to be, you know, contentious discussions on all of this, that, um we're going to have enough good partners on the boards to to get really great housing built in Manhattan. You have a, a really, um, as you've outlined, a really diverse array of sites here. You've got, uh, as you've stressed, um, a lot of what you're looking to do below 96th Street. You're talking about, you know, ensuring that this is a borough-wide approach to growth. So it's not just... Um, you know, something that's targeted for lower income communities where a lot of the rezonings of the de Blasio years took place um, across the, the city. Um, all that said, uh, let me just get into one example here. You point to the possibility of upzoning in Washington Heights uh, to build more housing in an area that's produced relatively few units over the last several years. It's an area where we've seen uh, more and more rent pressures, obviously. And so that's sort of a, one of the thorny issues of this and lots of the housing discussion that's going on is some of the of the attempt to shift the thinking around the fact that more housing supply does not necessarily mean a big acceleration of uh, gentrification, increased housing prices and so forth, um, that more needs to be done to create supply so that people who already live there are not being displaced by people who can afford to pay more rent. But, but that's, it's, it's tough and it's tricky. How are you thinking about navigating those conversations? Well, first we really prioritized equity. 75% of the units in our plan are South of 96th street. We really did not want to repeat 
the errors of the past. And, and every community board has sites or neighborhoods on our list. Um, I, th- I think it's, it's an incredibly equitable distribution. Um, yeah, the, the proposal in Washington Heights you're talking about, it's, it's um, 158th Street to 165th uh, neighborhood I, I know well because I represented it in the city council. Um, where we have several components to it, I think is a really exciting proposal for that neighborhood. We are talking about adding some density on Broadway. There's a lot of single story retail and um, that could have housing above it. And if you add density, then you can trigger um, mandatory inclusionary housing requirements. So you actually get on the developer's dime affordable apartments there. That's before um, the city puts in any money. And sometimes they, they do to, um, to get the affordability, affordability levels even higher. Um, uh, we also, uh, on 158th Street, um, just uh, off the, the Hudson River, there's a very large vacant site owned by um, DOT that's being used for truck parking that we propose uh, creating uh, a couple hundred units of affordable housing. Um, uh, so there, there's, there's a lot to this plan that I think is going to really excite people in the neighborhood. This is a neighborhood where there's virtually no low-income people living in market rate apartments. Um, unfortunately, Ben, that ship has basically sailed in Manhattan. Um, there, there's real income diversity in the neighborhood, but um, most of the low-income and working-class families are in rent-stabilized apartments. And um, we have a lot of fights to help them stay in those apartments, one of which is ensuring people have an attorney if they face an eviction in housing court. But, um, but they are thankfully um, not dealing with market rate rents. So uh, the, the way we think about displacement pressure in parts of the outer boroughs is it's kind of different in Manhattan. Um, and look, Washington Heights, Southern Washington Heights is a neighborhood where young people who grow up have very little hope of getting an apartment um, once they need to move out from their family's home. Um, and many of them are moving to the Bronx or Jersey or Pennsylvania or Yonkers. I mean, that's, that's kind of the pattern, the intergenerational pattern among, mm-hmm. uh, particularly among immigrant Latino Dominican families of, of Washington Heights. And um, a plan like we were proposing would create hundreds of units that would be affordable that people who grew up in the neighborhood could apply for. It would be just uh, a wonderful way to retain the, the vibrancy and diversity of this community. We are um, quickly going to run low on time. I want to try to uh, ask you a few other things about your your vision here. Just to go back to something you mentioned before, I, I wanted to clarify specifically: Are you in favor of doing away with parking minimums? Absolutely. In total. Yes. Okay. Absolutely. Okay. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but one uh, land type of land that is not included in your plan, or, or it might be, and I missed it, um, is this question of underutilized NYCHA land, uh, so sometimes referred to as, you know, NYCHA infill development. Is that not something you looked at? How do you uh, think about any, any possibility of that type of uh, work factoring into the housing growth in Manhattan? Yes, look, that's something that absolutely should be explored, but done in a way that treats residents of those developments like partners. 
And we just, we didn't have the capacity in the context of the survey to do that justice. Um, I will say that, that we are in conversations with uh, a few developments about um, their interest with resident leaders about their interest in infill as a way to improve the development and create some housing. And one or two have even come forward in the last 24 hours. Um, but uh, but I, I don't think it would be fair to just impose a plan like that on Niger re residents who have just suffered from from so much neglect. Mm -hmm. um, but it's it's definitely a question we have to explore, and we will. Yeah. When Mayor Adams was running for mayor, you probably know this. You know he he expressed support for that type of development, but often would say we pro you know we need to build these new buildings on, on Niger land and give current NYCHA residents in those same developments, the first opportunity to move yeah. into the new buildings and then yeah. potentially rehab those, the older yep. buildings. And there's people who say, just tear those older buildings down and rebuild. But we know that can get into some big questions where uh, whether government, I guess a lot of what we're talking about here has an underpinning of whether government can deliver. I don't know that we'll have time to, um, to get into that topic, but, um, but I know as part of what you've outlined, you, you've mentioned and you've discussed the need for city government to to be more robust. Um, there's obviously a lot of questions about staffing at some of the major agencies involved here: housing, preservation, development, city planning. The city, you know, is is seeing some real challenges on that front, and uh, still awaiting more from Mayor Adams about how he plans to deal with recruitment and retention and and so right. forth. Um, do you want to say anything about that briefly? Oh, it's hurting housing production in New York City. Mm -hmm. We have um, projects in the HBD pipeline that should be ready to go, but they don't have enough attorneys to to go to contract. Um, and it's I really feel for my friends at at city planning because um, they have a lot coming their way and they don't have all their positions filled. And the amount of analysis that goes into every every rezoning is quite significant. Um, we, we actually mentioned this in the plan. Um, we have, we, we've got to fix the staffing shortages at HPD. Yeah, I saw that. Do you have a solution for that though? I mean, is that just sort of like, Hey, mayor, you got to figure this out. Or do you, do you think it's, you know, a real re-examination of, of pay work from home flexibility? I, I, I think, I think we're going to have to be, I think both those two things, we're going to have to be more flexible with, um, hybrid in-person work and we're going to have to raise the salaries um, because we're competing for precious talent against private employers who pay more and offer more flexibility um, on in-person versus virtual work. And we're, we're, we're losing out um, and, and it's, it's slowing down housing production in the city, which we, we can't allow that. We cannot allow that to continue. Um one of the things underpinning a lot of this plan that you have is mandatory inclusionary housing uh, requirements where uh, a significant percentage of affordable housing has to come with uh, upzonings uh, on private land. If you do neighborhood rezonings, you typically have some sort of mandatory inclusionary housing uh, baked in as part of that. Experts say that um, MIH, mandatory inclusionary housing, really only works, um, especially in private development, in concert with tax incentives like the expired 421A program. 
is part of your thinking with this plan that there will be a new state tax incentive? The governor is supportive of this. The mayor is supportive of this. But there's been a lot of debate in the state legislature uh, around what it should look like, if anything. And they obviously allowed it to expire. Is that part of your thinking here that there needs to be some sort of uh, tax incentive for developers as part of of this vision? We didn't make that as an assumption, again, to be conservative. The previous program, the previous 421A had a lot of flaws, and I think it was right to replace it. It is right to replace it. But to leave no tax incentives in place will mean we get less housing and especially less affordable housing. So uh, it, to me, it's pretty clear we have to replace it. Hopefully, we'll replace it with something better. Um, but uh, even as our, our assumptions on numbers... Um, assumed uh, just MIH levels. And uh, that still got us to 30,000 units. Um, a strong replacement for 421A would get that number even higher. And I'll, I'll certainly be fighting for that. Mm -hmm. All right, we're in our last few minutes here. Let's hit, let's hit a few uh, quick quick topics here. Uh, uh, something of a, of a lightning round here. Is scaffolding reform on your agenda? Absolutely. What, Mentioned it in the speech last happen? night. Yeah. Um, uh, we have to reform uh, pretty much every part of this process. We have to look at why we are requiring scaffolding and whether we can require it in fewer instances. We have to look at why it's remaining up for so long and what enforcement measures we can apply to ensure if scaffolding comes down when it's no longer needed to, as, as a matter of safety. Is this something your office is working on? We are working on legislation uh, and other policy proposals. Stay tuned. Okay. All right. You wanted uh, the composting program that launched in Queens across the borough. You want that in Manhattan. Manhattan is slated in the mayor's new plan to be last uh, and not not uh, the program not expanded to Manhattan until close to the end of 2024. Is that not too late for you? It is too late. I mean, I'm thrilled that, we're, you going get... city... mm -hmm. thrilled that we're going citywide for this. Uh, absolutely the right thing to do. Um, but I, I don't want Manhattan to have to wait 20 months. Uh, so I want, I want to accelerate the timeline. And um, I do think in the meantime, there's been this um, pilot rolling out orange bins that collect compost on street corners. And we've had them in uptown Manhattan. They've been fabulously successful. So I certainly want that rolled out citywide. But Oh, excuse me, borough-wide as, as a stopgap measure. But but while celebrating the news that we're going to have compost pick up at every building, I do want to speed up the timeline. Yeah, again, that might go back to some of the city government capacity issues at hand. Do you want a casino in Manhattan? There's a, there's a lot to weigh on that question, <laughs> Ben. And of course, I'll have a formal role in approval of the local sites. There's five applications pending in Manhattan. Most of the applications... Um, probably of the seven or eight in total, five, it looks like we'll be in Manhattan. We got away um, on the one side, benefit for jobs and economic development. Um, we have to look at what any proposal would mean for a neighborhood, good and bad. Uh, I think we have to weigh concerns about gambling addiction and, and what it would mean to local residents. So there's a lot to consider. Um, we're in conversations already with um, the applicants for all the sites going to be happening soon, possibly uh, mid to late 2023, we could start the approval process for 
um, these local panels. So, uh, so uh, let's keep in touch on this one. Yeah, I mean, they're they're about. coming to New York City at least at least one, probably two, right? So, I mean, they, they're yeah. gonna they're gonna go somewhere. I don't know. Yep. I, I mean, I'm not, that's not me at all advocating for uh, for any any new casinos. Um, I've got I got plenty to say on that another time. Um, last couple of quick things: the Penn Station area redevelopment seems like there's some uh, hiccups in that. The governor's plan with the developers. There's been lots of questions about whether it's too heavy uh, on office space and not enough on housing. Going back to your, you know, housing vision here. Uh, any thoughts on the next phases of this really big Penn uh, Station area redevelopment plan? that the governor's been uh, working on, but you obviously have a, a significant voice here in what happens in something like this in Manhattan. Well, we desperately need to fix Penn Station. It's just, it's um, it's an embarrassment. We've got we've to invest billions there. It's, it's, it's going to take billions to upgrade that station to anywhere near the grandeur that, that it deserves. And we've got to find a way to pay for it, which is the challenge because we're, we're already paying for um the new gateway tunnel and even the biden announcement while extremely welcome is is still only a small percentage of the total cost um i do think that there can and should be more housing in the plan for the surrounding neighborhood um this is something that i think all the local electeds and i are unified on and we have been and will be will continue to push for that in your new plan uh, forgive me for not having looked at this closely in your new plan did you sort of leave the footprint of the the Hochul plan, did you sort of leave that out of your plan? Because we you, you... we did again in the interest of of being conservative, we didn't feel that we could count those units yet. Yeah, um, but I'm publicly and privately advocating for more housing in that neighborhood. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, on the on the question of of housing, just just quickly on a couple of these um, sites that have been controversial recently. Are you trying to uh, help orchestrate a new plan for the Harlem Truck Depot proposed 145 development project? Is there any uh, anything you're doing to help revive discussions there between the local city council member, Christian Richardson-Jordan, and the developer? Yes. <laughs> we cannot allow that to remain a truck depot. That's It's like environmental degradation in a community that already suffers from high asthma rates. It's, it's just it's outrageous. Uh, we need housing on that site. Uh, for your listeners who don't know, this is 145th and Lenox. It's on top of a subway stop. It should have housing in a neighborhood that desperately needs it. Um, and so we're, we're talking to all the stakeholders, the council member, um, community board, and leaders in in Harlem. And I've had some very, very preliminary conversations with the development team uh, with city planning uh, long way to go on this, but it's imperative that we try again. We just can't give up on this one. We can't let it remain a truck depot. And also leaving it vacant is not acceptable. Uh, it'd be, be better than having trucks spewing diesel fumes on that site. But to have that site vacant on top of a subway in the middle of a vibrant neighborhood when we have a housing crisis, that's also unacceptable. So we're, we, are, we are and will continue to work on this. And very lastly, another one that's been in the news that that hits at, the, at some of the core of your 
thinking here is this seaport site that was recently the development plan uh, down in the seaport was um, uh, recently halted uh, in court. This gets back to things related to, um, you know, questions around uh, historic preservation and environmental review and challenges around that. What's your uh, stance on on that project and what should happen around there and the and the ways in which it's been um, stalled? Well, I got to say, I really admire how my wonderful predecessor, Gail Brewer, handled that. Um, uh, the plan was put into place uh, under her leadership, and it included what is desperately needed support for the Seaport Historic District um, uh, by providing funding for the museum, which uh, would allow it to sustain and grow for years ahead. Um, it seems like the lawsuit is based on on the assertion that the historic preservation process was not adequately adhered to by LPC, and I, I can't really adjudicate that. But but mm-hmm. obviously they have to follow the rules on landmarking, uh, and I uh, so so if, if in fact they didn't, that that's a big problem. So I I, I kind of I don't know the technical details on that enough. Um, but um, talking to all the stakeholders in the neighborhood and obviously following it closely. All right. Well, I'm gonna, we're going to leave it there. Uh, we got to a lot, uh, some we didn't get to, but we'll, we'll check in on those topics down the line. Uh, Manhattan Borough President Mark Levine, thanks for taking all this time to discuss your new housing plan, the, the sort of core of your state of the borough here. You got to a variety of other things. We touched on a few of them, but there was a lot more to your agenda. Um, and, and folks should obviously check that out through your office. And uh, as you noted, people are welcome to uh, also send you feedback for additional places to uh, to support new housing in, in Manhattan or uh, other feedback on your on your new plan. But thanks very much for taking the time to discuss it all uh, with me. And uh, I think uh, lots of people will be listening to this with a lot of interest. Thank you, Ben. Great conversation. I always love being on and looking forward to the next time. All right. Thanks very much. Be well. 